How are the world's top equine athletes in eight disciplines managed from shipping schedules and quarantine to pain management and nutrition? Let's find out. Joining us today to answer your questions about this topic are Kent Allen, DVM, Official Veterinary Coordinator of the Alltech FEI World Equestrian Games and owner of Virginia Equine Imaging in the Plains. We also have Hannah Wellman, DVM, Reigning Team Veterinarian and Treating Veterinarian for the World Equestrian Games with Official Veterinary Partner, Root and Riddle Equine Hospital. And we also have Cynthia McKenzie, DVM, Senior Equine Technical Services Veterinarian for InterVet Shearing Plow Animal Health. Thank you all for joining us today. Now before we start, I'd like to let everyone know that we received hundreds of questions before this event. We will not be able to get to all of them, but we've picked out several to try and cover all the topics of interest related to World Equestrian Games Horse Care. Once we're through with those, uh, if we have any time left, we'll move on to some live questions. If you would like to ask a question, you might want to hang around for a little bit to see if we already have a similar one. And if not, please type your question into the chat box at the bottom of the control panel on your screen. Now for our first question, we're going to get to know our uh, veterinary panelists a little bit better. Holly from California would like to know of each, each of you, what led you to become a veterinarian and what do you love most about your career? Um, I can start if you'd like. I'm from Australia originally and grew up on a sheep farm with horses and then worked at the local veterinary practice um, and then went from there um, and was inspired to go to veterinary school in Australia and then came over here um, and started working exclusively with horses. The thing I love about my job is I get to be outside and I get to do something different every day um, and work with horses and their owners and um, look after that relationship with these amazing animals. Very good. And that was Dr. Wellman, by the way. Uh, this is Dr. Ken Allen. And um, I actually started, my father was uh, a fairly famous equine veterinarian, actually uh, developed rompum or xylazine as a tranquilizer and then uh, was a quarter horse judge. And so I was exposed to that at an early age, um, enjoyed doing it, and uh, I went on to become a veterinarian. My older sister went on to become a veterinarian, and my wife is a dolphin veterinarian. So we. We have a veterinary family and uh, have enjoyed, I ride fox hunters when I get a spare moment and uh, enjoy messing with horses every day. And lastly, this is Dr. McKenzie and I reign from the state of Texas and of course there's plenty of horses that I grew up around and I was your typical six-year-old little girl who wanted nothing but to be on top of a horse every second of the day. So. And, and then when I looked at career choices, I just wanted something where I was then going to be around horses um, all day long. So uh, what I think what I love most about my job now is being able to play a role in that really important human-animal bond. Um, seeing people interact with their horses and getting joy and fulfillment from that really um, makes my day, and, and that's what I get up for every single day. Very good. Very good. I can't say much because I'm not a veterinarian. I'm just a journalist. <laughs> Thank you for that. Our uh, next question on general care is from Daryl, who would like to know how many horses will attend the events at the World Equestrian Games. We have um, about 750 horses coming for the games for the competition side of it, but then we also have an extensive equine village which is comprised of horses that will be used for demonstrations. Um, and there's about 600 horses coming through over the period of the games um, as part of that. So it's very exciting for us to have these horses um, in town at the horse park. Very good. Our next question is from Glenn in South Carolina who would like to know what precautions are usually taken to ensure that a horse is healthy and fit for this level of competition. Yeah, this is Ken Allen. Um, usually what's done is, I mean, all these horses are superb athletes in their individual disciplines. Um, the FEI uh, certifies veterinary delegates and veterinary commissions to examine these horses. Um, uh, Dr. Wellman and myself will both be looking at the horses on arrival exams and then uh, the veterinary commissions will do horse inspections with the judges, make sure that the horses are sound, fit to compete, and then they will be monitored through the com competition. So actually, interestingly enough, the equine athlete at this level, at the FEI level, is probably the single most monitored athlete in the world. Um, irregardless of human or equine or other sports. 
Wow. Okay. Um, our next question is from a couple of people who ask questions along the lines of hydrating these athletes, uh, such as how do you maintain hydration in these horses, and if they tend to use IV fluids proactively or anything like this. Um, this is uh, Hannah Wellman. Um, a lot of these horses are coming in before the games uh, before and before the competition, so we're monitoring them a long way out from when they're actually competing and making sure they're well hydrated and uh, acclimating well to um, the changes that they're experiencing. Also, um, the veterinarian involved in taking care of these horses will also be doing a physical exam every day and checking that the horse is not displaying any signs of dehydration. Um, if they feel like a horse isn't you know, as, as hydrated as it should be, then there will be a discussion with the veterinary commission about whether the horse needs proactive use of IV fluids um, before competition. And of course, after competition, the horse is definitely assessed um, for levels of hydration and fluids may be used at that time as well. Yeah, this is Ken Allen, and I'd just add that um, there's a couple interesting points. One is when these horses fly, which many of them will, uh, essentially they lose a liter an hour uh, dehydrating in the dry air up at altitude. Um, so not uncommon that they will be a little dry when they hit the ground and go through their quarantine period, and so they're monitored during that. Uh, another interesting point is that uh, there is, and, and for our listeners at home, there's a, uh, a fairly simple way to go ahead and encourage drinking in some of these horses, and that is just use an ounce of light salt and an ounce of regular salt uh, twice daily for two, three days prior to the horse shipping. Um, and as long as you make sure that the horse has at least six hours access to water, uh, before you ship it, that will encourage it to drink quite a little bit. That's just a little salt top dressed on the feed? Exactly. Gotcha. Very good. And what about electrolyte levels? We have some questions on that as well. How do you manage those? Uh, well, one of the things that came out of the research for the uh, 1996 Atlanta Games, which were, you know, arguably the hottest games, maybe Hong Kong approached that, um, and we did a lot of work, and actually one of the products that came from that research is still out there, um, and it's called Summer Games Electrolyte Formula. And that is, interesting enough, a product that was matched exactly to what horses are sweating. Um, and so it's a very useful product, but there are numerous useful products. And then, you know, you can use uh, a slightly half the amount of uh, light salt and salt combination that I was talking about on a regular basis, too. Very interesting. All right, uh, we've, our next question is from Barbara in California, who would like to know how rigorous the pre and post exams are for the three-day eventing horses. Uh, and again, uh, this is Ken Allen again. Um, you know, I'm an eventing vet and another life, um, and these horses, as we talked about before, the pre and post exams are quite rigorous. These are very highly monitored individuals. Uh, all these horses are palpated for soft tissue, lesions. If there's a question, they're submitted for ultrasound exam. Um, and in past competitions, um, I, I think actually, I don't know how we would do it a whole lot better than what the current system is. I mean, you can't, uh, as David O'Connor talked about in the 2000 games when, unfortunately, the Bermuda Gold horse went out on course and broke its leg at the third jump. He said, you can't make sports safer than life. And, you know, you can get run over by a bus, which I almost did walking in Sydney one day. So, uh, oh, no. Uh, I looked the wrong way, but um, so I mean the point is we do everything we can to take care of these amazing athletes, but you can't reduce it to nothing. Uh, and then, okay, that was that question. Sorry, I'll shut up. <laughs> Not a problem. I think that's an excellent point to make: is that we we can't make sports safer than life, and you can't even make life safer. It's it's 100% safe. So, for sure. Um, okay, and Vanessa in Oregon has a question about what are the allowed drugs that can be used during these events? 
Um, this is Hannah Wellman. Um, there are a few drugs that we can use under FEI rules. Of course, these games are under FEI control. Um, so we can use some drugs like Legend or Adequan under veterinary supervision and FEI supervision and request. Um, fluids is also can be used and things like that. Um, but that's all done under veterinary supervision and steward um, supervision. Um, and we can also use anti-ulcer anti drugs as well and regimate if the horse is a mare um, and has um, appropriate paperwork to go with that. So everything is done under supervision. It's done in um, a specialized stall so that it's monitored while the medications are given um, to ensure that um, you know, the sport is a level playing field. Um, anything outside of that in the case of an emergency um, medication reports are required to be filled out and a discussion is had with the veterinary commission before those medications are administered. Very good. All right, we're going to skip to a little bit different category here. We had a, many questions on travel. Uh, Michelle would like to know how is the welfare of the horse guaranteed while traveling from one part to another by plane or by truck or boat or whatever? Uh, this is Ken Allen. And and there was, again, a lot of work done on this uh, for the 2000 Olympic Games where all these horses traveled down to Sydney. Um, and what we found with that research, and USEF actually has a publication still in print available for that, um, and it looked at the available research by car, by plane, uh, that sort of thing, is that, you know, you the horses do dehydrate, and you need to be aware of that. You need to try to hydrate beforehand, as we talked about. And then you need to be cognizant that, uh, uh, you know, watching their water consumption during traveling, doesn't matter whether it's by truck or whatever. And then also, particularly while they're traveling by truck or trailer, um, if the horses can't get their heads down, um, you probably shouldn't travel them for longer than about 12 hours at a time uh, because it's important that the horse get its head down and drain that mucus that's in its normally in its trachea. Uh, otherwise, they can get ill and get some respiratory issues if they're not able to do that. simple way to do that is, is stop overnight them, you know, give them eight hours to get their head down, eat, drink, and then get them back on the trailer and go again. And then some of these people do these long hauls, but often those are big vans and the horse is able to move around a bit and able to get its head down, which is a completely separate matter. Gotcha. All right. And also in the realms of travel, um, what steps do you take to, in, uh, to prepare a fit or sensitive horse for shipping by air and arriving in a new environment? Anything in special that you do for that? This is from Julie in Colorado. Um, this is Hannah Wellman. I think it's just important to remember that these horses are like professional athletes. So many of them, you know, are very used to shipping these distances and um, are used to traveling. Um, so a lot of them kind of take it in their stride, but it, most of it relates as well to what Dr. Allen just talked about and monitoring welfare and making sure um, the horses are well taken care of during that time. And then we're also making sure once the horses are arriving on site uh, or through the airports and the quarantine facilities that we're moving them through the process of checking paperwork and security and things like that as fast as we can so that we can get them into a stall environment. Um, with their grooms and handlers um, that are used to them to keep the, the stress level low. Very good. And speaking of stalls, uh, we had a few questions uh, from people on how are horses secured on planes, and are they using stalls or more bigger loose boxes, and are they climate controlled? What kinds of planes are used? People aren't very familiar with air transport necessarily. Well, I can actually do the next four questions as a group. Uh, <laughs> okay. Having uh, flown a lot with horses. Um, and uh, they're in what's called air stables. These, are, these planes will largely be 747 charters, and there's usually about uh, 40 to 50 on the plane. Um, it, it's climate controlled, but I can tell you it's cold. Uh, you know, you'll wear a coat or a fleece if you're back there in the cargo section. Um, and then commonly in these team competitions, they'll have vets with them, not uncommon for them to be, as Dr. Wellman stated, if they're a seasoned traveler, then they just kind of have this gig, just like uh, you know all of you who travel for work and you're just used to it. 
Um, they're only sedated usually for a real nervous horse or a horse that has flown for the first time and is having trouble. They have trouble with their ears on the way down like we do. Um, never seen any dizziness before. Uh, but they can be lightly sedated um, with some of the more common tranquilizers, which clear very quickly in the horse's system. Uh, so that's not a problem. Occasionally, um, they are given, particularly a horse that's kind of a, a nervous, uh, poor doer, those horses will be given um, omniprazole or gastroguard. Um, to help reduce their stomach and, and chances of colic. So um, that's all pretty routine. Gotcha. I don't always even get a 747. <laughs> 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 I'm a little jealous. <laughs> okay, so Pam from Missouri would like to know how long in advance do horses have to arrive to acclimate them to conditions or food, et cetera, so that they perform at their best? Um, again, on the, along those same lines, and that's back to the work we did prior to 2000, is the number we came up with is it's best to do it um, at least three days, given them acclimation. Now, they'll be in the quarantine. The horses coming from Western Europe will be in the quarantine for about at least 42 hours. So they actually have plenty of time to acclimate. If you give them a few days more, which most of the teams will, then if they do get a mild respiratory thing, then you still have the timeline to go ahead and treat them and get them back to a competition um, you know, setting before they're ready to go. But if you cut it too close, you can, if they get sick, you've essentially got no leeway. You've got no horse. Okay. Yep. Understand. All right, and uh, Jennifer from Ontario would like to know how the general anxiety that horses may feel when traveling away from home is handled. Is this just with the tranquilizers that we discussed earlier, or is there any alternatives? Yeah, uh, I mean, and usually the grooms are traveling with them, who know them well, and they're back there talking to them and circulating amongst the horses and, you know, feeding them and checking on them and, uh, you know, uh, I guarantee you, they get a level of attention and care that you and I are not getting on flights nowadays. So uh, maybe unless you're up in first class, but uh, they 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 do pretty well. I took a red eye back from uh, Labor Day weekend, and yeah, nobody was worried about my anxiety level for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Sharon from also from Canada would like to know what uh, if any of you have any experiences with transport injuries or horses that just panic and uh, these travel situations, and how do you handle these? Yeah, the most uh, you really have very few problems with it. The the real quickly, the two most exciting ones I ever had was. Uh, in Argentina, we had a horse going crazy up on top of the scissor lift. We were trying to get it down, and so I got to climb up the scissor lift and tranquilize it. That was briefly exciting. And then the other time was that uh, the horses were very nervous, and I was trying to decide whether to sedate them before we took off. And I finally asked the crew, I said, Hey, have you got something in here that's getting these horses upset? And they said, yeah, we got two Bengal tigers a little further up front. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay, well, I'll definitely be sedating the horses. Thank you. <laughs> oh, wow. That must have been a very exciting trip. That was a good one. <laughs> okay. Um, our next question is from Kathy from North Carolina, who would like to know how a horse is trained to accept takeoff and landing, or do you just start with the tranquilizers if you've got a horse that's having problems? If they're really getting nervous, honestly, it's just uh, the tranquilizers are no big deal. I mean, honestly, it's not much different than, um, you know, you having a glass of wine before you go get on the plane if you're nervous about it. Uh, so they honestly handle it pretty well, and then the rookie horses have not learned the trick of uh, kind of, they'll learn to swallow, and again, the handlers will will go put hay nets in front of them on the way down, so they're eating, and if they're eating, they're swallowing, and so they have no problems. Gotcha. Yeah, you can't exactly ask them to chew gum, can you? No. <laughs> okay. Um, our last question along the, uh, the travel lines is, um, do horses technically get jet lag as humans know it? And this is from Madeline. 
they they essentially do, but again, it, it's very short lived. It's you know twenty four forty eight hours, just like we are, um, and and again. The horse has a spleen that we don't have, which can readily put a lot of red cells into the system very quickly. Um, and so it's got a pick-me-up that we don't exactly have. And so they'll come back pretty quickly. And remember, the shortest time in quarantine is, is 42 hours on these horses. I got you. All right, so we're moving on to a little bit different category. We're going into disease concerns. Um, we have, of course, gotten a few questions about pyroplasmosis. Uh, we have a few people who have asked what are the environmental precautions have been taken to prevent the spread of pyroplasmosis, and are horses tested for this disease before entering the U.S.? I can have a go at answering this question. Um, all horses are, that are going to be competing or coming into the Kentucky Horse Park um, will be tested for pyroplasmosis. Um, and they're required that paperwork before they, you know, get through the gate to make sure that we're not bringing anything up back with the competition or um, other horses used for demonstration. Any horse that is positive for pyroplasmosis will be identified and will be stabled separately um, from the general horse population, and they will be consistently identified as being pyroplasmosis positive. They'll have a um, tag on their halter that identifies them as such. Um, we've also been treating the grounds around the area for ticks, which is the vector that spreads this disease. Um, they've been mowing the grass extensively leading up to the games to try and discourage um, ticks in the area and also clearing out any underbrush and things like that in the, in the immediate area around. Also, the horses that are positive will be in separate grazing areas and will have to keep on paths that have been mowed or on areas where there's not going to be um, tick issues. All the horses that are coming in, regardless of what they tested for, will be checked for ticks. And then the horses that are positive will also be checked every time they're coming in and out of the stables for any reason, grazing, competition, and things like that. So um, you know, it's something that's definitely on our radar, and they're going to be extensively monitored. They're also, um, we're making sure that all horses that are coming in are wormed um, within the last month with a product that will um, kill the ticks, an ivermectin-based product. So um, that's another precaution that we're using. Um, to make sure that we're keeping on top of that, and horses that are positive will be treated on top of that um, with a product that kills ticks. So um, it's definitely something we're very cognizant of. Yeah, if if the uh, listeners want to, I think you can go to the Kentucky Department of Agriculture site and find the pyroplasmosis protocol for the WEG, and I believe it's also on the World Equestrian Games site. Um, and again, it, it's been extensive. We started the research on this eight years ago, um, and the first tick survey was done almost nine years ago for Kentucky Horse Park. USDA, Kentucky Department of Agriculture, participated in the development of this pyroplasmosis protocol. And the other thing that helps people understand it is that our horses go over and are stabled next door to pyroplasmosis horses in Europe and don't get the disease. So it's not that it's easily spread, uh, but we are taking uh, tremendous precautions, just as Dr. Wellman stated, to make sure that there's no chance that accidentally this disease could be spread further in the United States. Gotcha. That's all very good to know. Uh, we probably, I'm not sure if everybody is fully familiar with the disease since we don't tend to have it over here. We might want to do a quick description of what it is. And while we do that, I'm going to just put up a quick poll real quick for our readers. Do you tend to quarantine new horses on your farm to prevent spreading diseases? Everybody would like to uh, answer that. And if somebody could just give us a quick couple sentences on what pyroplasmosis is and why it's something that we don't want to bring into this country. Sure. Um, I, I can discuss a little bit. Um, pyroplasmosis is a protozoal-based disease that's spread um, by ticks. Signs that we'll be looking for um, for horses include usually a fever. They go off their feet a little bit. Um, they may display signs of anemia, which is um, a decrease in the red blood cells, or jaundice, which is related um, to the changes with the red blood cells. Um, and then other things, if they um, have it for a prolonged period, they may display things like chronic weight loss um, or in um, very severe cases, it can cause death. And just to add, uh, make sure we're putting this in perspective, is that the most horses who have 
acquired the disease, and it's largely endemic in areas of South America and Southern Europe, um, then get the disease but are not sick after that. Uh, so they're carriers of it, but they suffer no illness, as evidenced by the fact that we're going to have somewhere between 65 and 100 horses in the pyroplasmosis positive stable who are competing at world-class levels and very successfully. So, uh, you know, this isn't something that makes the horse sick and poor doing. This is something, a disease that um, is endemic in parts of the world, but horses compete very successfully with it. Gotcha. Good information to have, and thank you. Um, Moving on, we've got a question actually from one of our current attendees uh, who says, Susan, who recalls that there were some European horses that came through to a competition a few years ago and brought a disease with them and they weren't allowed to go back to their own country, so they ended up being sold here and wants to know how a horse with a, such a disease could get out of their own country <laughs> or into this one. Well, uh, and this is Ken Allen again, uh, but there are, you know, USDA sets the requirements for entry into the United States, and the pyroplasmosis protocol, it, that's one of the four diseases specifically tested for. So this is a competition waiver uh, of that. Um, so there are no exemptions other than that for these horses entering the U.S. As far as other countries, they all have their own specific requirements um, for horses that come to the U.S. and then go back. And then uh, that's one of the things that we're going to be doing is making sure that we are satisfying those requirements for those various countries so these horses can successfully be exported back out. And we have, you know, it would be highly unusual that that would not be the case. Good to know. And Madeline asks as well, what num percentage or number of horses competing do you expect to be positive for this disease? For pyroplasmosis, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I haven't done the math, but it's going to be, like I say, somewhere between 65 and 100 positive out of about 750 competing. Gotcha. Very good. Thank you. And um, let's see, Tracy from Ontario would like to know how one would best time vaccines for competing horses. Switching gears a little. Yeah, so I'll take a I'll take a stab at that one here. So um, these are high level competition horses. So these are international travel. So it, when you're timing vaccines for these this level of competing horses, it has to do with entry requirements into the particular country that they're going into and satisfying their requirements and quarantine requirements. And and so that's the place to to start there when you're talking about infectious, contagious, upper respiratory diseases, which is mainly what they're concerned about and some of these other um, tick-borne diseases. Um, when, when you're dealing with just a regular competing horse that's not um, getting on a plane and flying first class uh, across the world, and, and you're just dealing with um, local travel or even travel here within, within the United States, um, the best thing to do for those upper respiratory contagious diseases is to have that horse's immune system properly boosted prior to that event. And I always say it's somewhere around four weeks is the optimum time that you want to be administering those vaccines so that that horse, horse's immune system has the right amount of time to mount that protective immune response to things like um, strep equi or strangles, um, influenza, um, equine herpes virus, where of course the goal in vaccinating your horse against equine herpes virus isn't necessarily to prevent them from getting the disease because 80% of the horses that are walking around already are blatantly infected with that disease. The goal in that vaccination program is to just keep a lid on how they're shedding that virus. So. Um, in, in general, with competing horses, we, we say at least a month month before they leave if, if it's a local or um, national event. And, and again, if you're dealing with international competing horses, then you need to be um, looking at their particular country of entry and their quarantine requirements and what they're going to require in terms of vaccination. 
Gotcha. And speaking of quarantine, uh, as far as our poll results go, we had 77% of our attendees say that they do quarantine new horses on the farm to avoid spreading diseases. 23% do not. So we're going to uh, move on to our next question from Eugenia in Mexico, who says, um, what are the challenges uh, faced by quarantine facilities in Miami, Los Angeles, and New York for horses for the World Equestrian Games? Anything special going on there? Yeah, I can probably do the next one after that at the same time. Um, the the actually hardly any horses are coming through New York, Newburgh, um, and then Miami and Los Angeles are getting these. Miami is getting the South American horses that are doing seven day quarantine. They're having to do that there. Los Angeles is getting the forty two hour quarantine of horses coming from the Pacific Rim. Um, but again, these are not big numbers. The big numbers, the 500 plus horses that are coming in, are coming in through a temporary quarantine facility set up at the Cincinnati airport. And that's how we're keeping the load off of Miami, Los Angeles, and New York. Um, and that is actually the largest airlift of uh, of horses all going to the same location uh, for one reason since World War II. Uh, so it's a big effort, and like I say, but we have uh, a bunch of veterinarians and volunteers up there doing it. USDA is there, Kentucky Department of Agriculture there. There's a large staffing contingent, and they are in separate barns. When they come in, a flight goes into its own separate barn and goes through the 42-hour quarantine while the blood is shipped off to the National Animal Disease Laboratory and then comes back negative and then that group, if they're all healthy and doing well, is released as a group. Um, and that's how that gets done. And then obviously any horse that would get sick would be taken to an isolation area and uh, at the quarantine up in Cincinnati or here on the horse park. And if it was very sick at all and we were concerned, then it would be transferred to a dedicated isolation facility, such as what they have here at Root and Riddle. Okay. So then if a horse turned up sick, would everything else from its flight end up be going into a longer quarantine as well? It's quite possible that they could be held for a longer period of time to see if anyone else was going to get sick. If no one else was getting sick, then the horses, the other a uh, group of horses would be released. Uh, if other horses were getting sick, then the entire load would be held until it could be sorted out. But again, Kentucky Department of Agriculture has laboratories standing by here to run, um, you know, very quick diagnostic tests if needed in that regard. Very good. Okay, good to know. Um, we're going to ask our audience another quick question. What do you, uh, what diseases do you vaccinate your horse against? Since we were talking about vaccinations a little bit earlier, we'll leave that up and go on to our next question. We're moving into uh, lameness and leg care issues. Uh, Colleen from Connecticut would like to know what kind of leg care program do these kind, these, this level of horses have, particularly jumpers and event horses, eventing horses. Yeah, this is uh, Ken Allen again. It's interestingly enough, it's it's. Nothing, honestly, that your your many people aren't already doing with their horses, and that is just kind of good basic evaluation. And and what clients that we have that do anything from the Olympics of the World Equestrian Games to uh, Pony Club, um, and that is have their have a soundness exam done on your horse, wellness exam twice a year have the horse moved and jogged for the veterinarian, uh, and have them make sure that they evaluate the shoes. And, and oftentimes, we do balance films on the feet to make sure that we're happy with how the shoeing is going. Um, now, these horses, as they've been going through the selection process, I mean, they have team veterinarians and panels of veterinarians evaluating these horses. Um, and then again, when they get here, uh, we'll have arrival exams and veterinary commission veterinarians watching them as well as their team veterinarians. So they'll get some uh, special scrutiny, uh, particularly since they're doing it at this level. But honestly, 
just good wellness, soundness care is not that hard to do for any of your horses. All right. And we've got a question from Anwar Jordan who would like to know uh, about boot control and jumping events. Is there a maximum weight for both front or for either front or back boots? Um, I, it's, I believe it's 500 grams. For both back front or back? Okay. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And Leah from Maryland would like to know about the effectiveness of protective and or support boots in riding. Do sports medicine boots really support and protect against impact or injury? Um, I think we have to look at this question really on an um, individual horse basis. Every horse is a little bit different um, in what they require. I know, you know for reining, the boots are a little bit different too for their knees and things like that if they're knocking them in the spins. And they certainly may be beneficial in that for um, stopping reaction there for those type of horses that um, continue to do that. I think what's most important is that if you are going to be using protective or support boots is that they fit um, properly and that they're put on. Um, as directed, because ill fit and issues with that is probably where you're going to get into more trouble um, than actually having nothing at all. Gotcha. Good information to have. All right. Um, just to let everybody know the results of our poll, we had uh, what diseases do you vaccinate your horse against? It looks like 76% of our audience is vaccinated against rabies, 82% for West Nile virus, 71% for uh, Eastern equine encephalitis and Western. 71% for flu and rhino, and 94% for tetanus. All right, we're going to move on to pain management. And V from California would like to know, what do vets use for pain management in these competing horses? And then we said earlier, there's not a whole lot of things we can use under FEI rules. Yeah, uh, I thought you were going to end that question of what do vets use for pain management. <laughs> uh, and that's usually, you know, ibuprofen, Tylenol. But uh, no. Um, the, uh, you're exactly correct. In FEI competitions, uh, non-steroidals are not currently legal during competition. I think that's unlikely to change. Uh, many of you know there's been some controversy about that over the last year. Um, I think it's very unlikely to change in the future. Um, and remember that non-steroidals are used in competition both in USEF rules and also in uh, uh, AQHA rules, and I think can be used safely during competition, but uh, again, not in FEI. As far as the preferred ones, um, you know, natural or otherwise, if I'm going to bother, I'm either going to use a non-steroidal I know uh, and have faith in, such as, uh, you know, butbanamine, equiox, something like that. And then I'm going to use it for the period of time that I need to, and then I'm going to get off of it. And I'm not a big fan of the herbal versions of it. I don't think they're terribly effective. And I would use, uh, if you're using along the lines of what USEF and AQHA say are safe to use during competition, and you do it for a limited period of time, I think it's it's safe in most horses. But like any other drug, it should be used when it's needed, and then it should be discontinued. And uh, again, USEF went through uh, a controversy lately here with the Hunter Jumper, and I was quoted several times as saying many of these horses don't need another drug. They need a diagnosis, and I would stick by that. Excellent point. All right, um, we have just a comment from uh, Shelley in Canada who's, who feels that uh, she's been showing horses for nearly 30 years and feels that uh, more drugs are being used in horses these days. Do you share that opinion? I, I would think that as the horse-owning public and veterinarians become uh, more sophisticated, more knowledgeable, Yes, to a certain extent, you will see more medications used. But uh, again, I, you know, being the son of an equine veterinarian and pretty much growing up in the profession, I, I would tell you that uh, I think many drugs were underutilized in the past, and um, and you know, are they being overutilized? Well. Particularly if you're trying to mask a lameness, and so the first thing you do when your horse has a problem is not necessarily reach for the butte, but try to figure out what the problem is. And again, back to that comment I made earlier, make sure you have a diagnosis uh, 
not just that you're giving the horse a lot of medication. And so that, again, comes back to sophistication and education of the horse-owning public. Very good. All right, we've got another poll to bring up since we've talked so much earlier about disease and traveling and whatnot. Uh, for our audience, how do you protect your horse from disease while traveling? We'll leave that up and move on to a question that we had fairly commonly about injuries in these horses. Uh, Niels in uh, British Columbia would like to know what are the three most what are the most common injuries that you tend to see at this sort of event with all these disciplines, and what can we do to avoid them? Well, why don't uh, maybe Dr. Wellman wants to talk about reining horses. This one you'd have to break up by discipline. How about if I do eventing, Dr. Wellman can talk about reining horses. Good. In eventing, the most common injuries are going to be um, soft tissue injuries, uh, bows of the superficial digital flexor, uh, strains of the suspensory ligament, and then um, um, you know, exertional myopathy or tying up. Those are easily the three most common. And then the only other one that you'd include in the event horse is that, um, you know, again, they jump obstacles that don't fall down. And so sometimes you can get bruising and banging, very, very rarely a fracture, but bruising and banging of the stifle area. So what about reining horses? Um, reining is similar for soft tissue injury is probably the most common, um, the suspensory type injuries that we see. Um, also these horses are using their back end um, a lot, so we see issues with the hocks and stifles, um, even if they're acute or whether they're chronic just um, from competing. Um, catastrophic injury is very, very rare in these horses. Um, and what we're doing to avoid them is, we've discussed it previously, all these horses are getting consistent physical exams and we're watching them leading up to the competition. These horses are getting evaluated by their veterinarians um, and the team veterinarian is usually well aware of the horse um, and what's been done recently um, with it. So, but that's probably about it. Gotcha. And any thoughts on the other events, the dressage, pair dressage, driving, endurance, vaulting? Well, we've got a question right under this on endurance. Mm -hmm. um, and endurance, um, stress fractures in the cannon bone are, are talked about nowadays. It didn't used to be something we saw in the endurance horse. Um, but again, they're going much faster than they used to go. Um, and so as long as the footing's good, I think it's very unusual that we would see a stress fracture. Um, and then as far as... Now, this is the group of horses that is the most monitored during the entire competition. Now, they do their entire competition in a day, but they will be seen by the veterinarians, um, you know, multiple times when they come back in at various times during the race. And if they cannot get their heart rate down below 64, or they are limping, they're going to be eliminated uh, well before the end of the race. So uh, endurance has quite a good system on making sure they're not going to run injured. Very good. And we've got a sort of a follow-up question from Nina, who is uh, here during the session, who wants to know how what, what the veterinary's preparation is in case of an injury, say a traumatic injury. That may, this one may be more for Dr. Wellman. Um, in the case of an in, during competition, if we have an injury, mm -hmm. um, well, usually there's a team veterinarian associated with that horse, so they'll be notified and um, go and do a physical exam on the horse and determine, you know, try and localize the pain to a specific area. Um, we have a great veterinary clinic um, on site that's staffed with world leaders in their field, so the team veterinarian can definitely um, pull on those resources if any imaging um, is required for that, um, and specialists in lameness um, are available or medicine or whatever is, is necessary, um, and just go from there. And then regarding treatment, the veterinary commission is consulted um, based on the diagnostics and how the horse is doing to go on and what the options are. Very good. All right, we've got just a couple more questions on injuries, and then we're going to move into a couple of other areas. Uh, Carrie from Illinois would like to know if uh, galloping or regarding galloping or jumping in muddy cross-country conditions, at what point is the mud too deep or too dangerous, and what can a rider do to help save the horse from injury if it is muddy? Yeah, uh, 
usually the course designers and the technical delegates are real helpful in this. If the course becomes, obviously it won't be the entire course that would become too muddy, but there are certainly parts of it. And this has happened at Rolex in the past, is that then the course designer and the technical delegate in conjunction with the ground jury has removed certain jumps because of the footing has become too dangerous or too deep. And they'll pull those jumps out, and then they'll continue on with the safer parts of the course. Um, and, and I've been standing in the box at Rolex uh, a time or two when the writer asked my advice, and I said, I wouldn't go out in this stuff. Um, and some of them listen to you, and some of them don't. Uh, but uh, the good news is the horses usually go out there and do pretty good because they they'd pretty much rather run cross-country than eat when they're hungry. <laughs> That's the kind of horses you want to be on, for sure. All right, uh, we've got a couple of questions about the horse park. Um, can Joy from Missouri would like to know if you can tell what you can tell us about the footing in the arenas. Well, uh, I mean, and I think you've referred to a story in a video that the horse has done, mm -hmm. uh, but it's pretty amazing over there, I can tell you, you know, having now been at the horse park for 25 years for Rolex um, is you go look at the footing in the competition arenas now and it's all this synthetic footing that is just amazing. I mean you walk around in it you can feel the bounce. Uh, so I mean definitely the footing's a brave new world. It's not what it used to be and it's pretty incredible stuff. So that's what I would tell you and refer you to the video. Very good. And the video that uh, Dr. Allen is referring to is on thehorse.com. If you may want to check it out after this seminar, um, if you go to the homepage, we've got a graphic there for our World Equestrian Games coverage. And then once you get there, we have a number of videos on the horse park and the veterinary setup and things like that. So you may want to check that out. Okay. Last question about the horse park. Eileen from Pennsylvania would like us to briefly describe the stables that the horse will be kept at during the event. What kind of air quality that they will have? Will the public be able to get over there to see the horses, etc.? Um, the stabling for the horses will be broadly divided between horses that are there for the competition and horses that are there for the demonstration. Um, and they're in separate areas in the horse park. Once you get into the competition horses, they're divided based on things like we've discussed, their pyroplasmosis testing and things like that. There's different levels of security and quarantine within that area based on those test results. Um, the stables are the same stables we've been using out at the horse park. They're excellent air quality. They're open to the outside. There are some tents, but they're also very open um, with a lot of air circulation. So the quality is, is very good, I think. For public access, due to the quarantine um, protocols that we've discussed a little bit, there will be no public access to the stabling areas. Um, and you know, uh, um, credentials are required to get in there and then that depends on um, which horses, the level of credentials that are required. So we're, there's 24-hour security on these horses, and um, we're definitely making sure that we try and re reduce any um, risk of disease spread and things like that. Very good. All right, uh, before we move into our next few questions on nutrition, just wanted to let everybody know the results of our poll on audience poll on how do you protect your horse from disease while traveling. 86% of you use regular vaccination. 55% make sure to avoid any nose-to-nose -nose contact from their horses to other horses. 72% also avoid sharing equipment. 10% uh, of you feed or dose with an immunity-boosting product. And 17% employ other measures. Um, to close out our disease concern, let's also ask, what is your primary equine contagious disease concern? And while we're working on that, um, we'll move on to some questions on nutrition. Uh, Pam from Florida would like to know what type of supplements and feed does this level of athlete tend to receive? Uh, do you want to add another hour onto this? Or, Not uh, really, but this is a pretty big <laughs> question, I understand. <laughs> That's a huge question. Uh, well, I mean, we've, we've talked about uh, some of this as far as electrolytes and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, and again, gastrointestinal, the number one one would be the anti-ulcer medications, uh, being ulcer guard, gastro guard being the number one. Joint one, pretty much the ones containing uh, either hyaluronic acid or uh, chondroitin or glucose.
glucosamine, and nowadays, um, in addition, ASU, um, which is one of the few that has some really good science behind it. Um, and then hoof, uh, the variety of those usually containing methionine vitamins. Uh, again, a variety of them on the market uh, for my money and for a lot of, I mean, Platinum Performance has some of the better vitamins on the market, uh, as well as minerals and then a variety of different grains dependent upon the horse, what it's doing, and, um, and its individual care. So that's fast as I could do that one. Good job. I think that was only about one minute. Perfect. Um, Kristen from Texas would, also, would like to know if horses being shipped in from other countries have to switch forages, or do they bring their own, or do they gradually transition from their own to local forages? How does that work? That's a really good question, because that's a fairly complicated thing and one that is kind of unique to these big competitions. Um, and so they do have to switch forage. Um, because a lot of these countries won't allow you to bring uh, hay in from other countries because of the concern of seed or um, contaminant or insect contaminant. Uh, and so they will switch over during the quarantine period and then they will come out. Um, and then the supplier to the World Equestrian Games is Kentucky Equine Research Joe. Um, Joe Pagan, who's done this at almost all the Olympics and World Equestrian Games over the last decade or two. Um, so, yeah. Very good. And Susan from Connecticut has a similar question. Uh, are competitors permitted to bring into the U.S. any nutritional supplements they use, even if they are not registered in the U.S.? Yes, is the answer. Okay. Um, Peter from Ontario would like to know if there's a particular percentage of protein versus carbs that these performance horses tend to be fed. Uh, we need Joe Pagan on this call for this one. <laughs> uh, you know, it's most of these horses, these are adult horses, and so they're, you know, 10 to 12 percent protein. And then, uh, obviously, there's a lot of carbs in all these feeds because that's primarily what most grains are. Uh, and it just depends upon what the individual grain is to how much carbohydrate, uh, with corn being the heaviest and uh, oats and others being lower. But uh, past, past that, that's what I can say without past that, you need a nutritionist. Gotcha. Okay. And just real briefly, the results of our poll on uh, what's your primary equine contagious disease concern, 51% of our audience feels that it's equine influenza, 54% feel that it's herpes virus, also known as rhino, 65% say it's strep equi or strangles, 27% say it is something else. So we've got one more can, question. Can I ask Dr. McKenzie if she agrees with that? I would have thought flu is the biggest concern. Well, it depends on what area of the world you're in. <laughs> I think if you're in, in Australia, probably flu is one of your primary concerns. Um, we're seeing flu cropping up more here in the United States, um, and we're seeing some emerging strains um, that, that are coming out that look to be a little bit more pathogenic, and that's the challenge of uh, companies like my, who I work for is to keep up with these um, strains of influenza that tend to, um, you know, shift on us. Um, as far as herpes virus is, is concerned, um, I, I know it's pretty ubiquitous around the world. And within this country, I've seen data up to about 80% of the population is already latently infected. So, uh, again, you know, your goal in vaccinating is not necessarily to prevent the disease. So. Strangled is always is always a tough one, and um, I think until we come up with a better mousetrap for how to vaccinate for strangles, it, it's always going to be right there on the forefront, um, especially when you're dealing with some of these um, competition horses and intermingling um, scenarios. It's always going to be a concern. So, good to know. All right, we have one more nutrition question from Susan in Connecticut who would like to know how, what, what percent or how often do horses have difficulty adjusting to new water when they travel for competition and what can be done to help? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question too. And, uh, you know, the, the old trick is um, 
uh, apple juice. And a lot of people would take apple juice along and start them a day or two and, and just enough to give it a flavor. Uh, there's been another report recently that was pretty interesting that seems incredibly obvious is that horses, when it's hot, like cool, not cold water, and uh, horses, when it's, um, you know, really cold, they like a little bit of warmer water. So, you know, the same thing we like, honestly. Um, and if you can actually do that, you'll be able to increase the amount of water consumption. That's good information. I seem to remember a, a study from a ways back saying that horses would drink more if the water, not just would drink more often, but would drink a, a higher volume if, if it was at a better temperature. If it, For example, if it was really cold outside, that they would drink more if it was a little bit warmer rather than as ice cold. Yeah, the, the new part of the study is the reverse, which is that if you, it, when it's really hot, if you'll make it cooler, they'll drink more too. Very good. Makes sense. All right, we've got just a few minutes left and uh, just a couple more questions. Um, Stacy from Kentucky would like to know if uh, the veterinarians at the games or if anybody will be utilizing services from sports therapists such as massage, laser therapy, ultrasound, or et cetera for these horses. Yeah, and um, Mimi Porter, who's a local uh, physiotherapist and, and has a was our physiotherapist uh, for the 1996 Atlanta Olympics, uh, will be providing that with her team of physiotherapists. And uh, she'll use all these modalities that we're talking about and more. And now uh, some of these are monitored by the veterinary commissions, and they'll have to register uh, who they are and what horses they're doing this to. And there are some therapies not allowed, the very high-intensity electromagnetic. Um, but most of them are pretty straightforward and a, and a good way to kind of help the horses feel a little bit better. And uh, definitely uh, uh, Mimi Porter, who's written several books on this, uh, will be doing that. And then a lot of the teams bring their own people as well. Okay, very good. We're just going to do two more questions. Um, Jean from California would like to know what, what your recommendations are for stretching and warming up horses before and after riding for these events. Um, again, you know, it, it's here's where you want to really use good common sense. And, you know, if you can get your horse out there, just it doesn't matter whether you're an upper-level rider or you're just out there riding your horse, is try to let them get their head down, stretch a bit, let them stretch their back and their neck, warm them up a bit. If you have a horse with back problems, you're going to do better warming them up at the uh, walk and the canter and then going back to the trot uh, at a later time in five, ten minutes, and the horse will be warmed up and much more comfortable. Um, so, you know, good common sense. Um, the, the best book on stretching, which is relatively old but still in print, is done by uh, Jean-Marie Denois, who's, uh, for my money, the Da Vinci of veterinary medicine. And he wrote an excellent book on stretching that most of the listeners could benefit from. Ah, very good. And for those of you who would like to search for that book, his last name, I believe, is spelled D-E-N-O-I-X. Is that correct? Right. Okay. All right, we'll take uh, one more question here from uh, Elke, who would like to know if the athletes at the World Equestrian Games will see more tests for doping than at usual events of, events of that caliber. Um, yeah, and um, again, there will be uh, a lot of testing. And uh, again, there's um, the testing that's done on an individual sample nowadays is looking for somewhere between one and 300 substances. Um, and so the um, FEI reference lab for North America will be doing that testing as they've done all the FEI testing uh, for the last 15 years. And uh, usually at these competitions, about 10% of the horses, sometimes as high as 15% will be tested, uh, usually picking the winners. Very good. But also some random. And there is the um, choice that um, teams can participate in elective testing before the games um, or their competition begins if they would like to do that. Yeah, good point. Yeah, very good. 
All right. Well, that's about all the time we have today. I'd like to thank Drs. Alan Wellman and McKenzie for your time today and answering everyone's questions. They did an absolutely wonderful job. Hope you enjoyed the session. And we'd like to thank you, our audience, for participating. There were some great questions today. Uh, just to remind everyone, the recording of this session will soon be archived on thehorse.com, so you can listen to it again or share it if you would like. And last but not least, thank you to InterVet, Shearing Plow, Animal Health for bringing this free session to you today. Uh, you can visit them online at uh, www.intervet.com. For more information on the 2010 World Equestrian Games, you can see we've got uh, articles, blogs, videos, and uh, podcasts of this information at www.thehorse.com. And uh, next month's Ask the Vet Live topic will be on colic, so stay tuned to thehorse.com for registration information. I hope everyone has a wonderful evening and uh, that everybody enjoys the World Equestrian Games, either in person or from home. Have a great evening. Thank you.